you mentioned Jaws earlier, and it makes me think of like what Jaws does with the shark to create a monster. It feels like yeah. that's what Norman Bates as like a multiple personality, yeah. uh, schizophrenic possibly. Person. Well, he's, that's they're, the thing. Like, he's kind of a con conglomeration of a bunch of different mental illnesses, which is true. Like people do have multiple, but like it was like a cherry picked. Like I'm yeah. gonna get every like thing I can and put it all into one person. But they monsterfied him, right? And like they, they monsterfied turned, him. Yeah. They turned him into the monster rather than something that's more believable. One of the things I will give him credit for is that he does seem to find some empathy for Norman. Like Norman's not. I don't know. He is the monster here, but. It felt to me like he was trying to at least write with a little bit of empathy for him. Um, empathy for the devil kind of thing. Welcome, friends, to episode 293 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Robert Block's 1959 novel, Psycho. So shout out to all our patrons for uh, checking us into the Bates Motel for the next couple weeks. Uh, this should be an interesting stay. <laughs> Very festive time of year for that. Right. Perfect. Perfect. I think it won out over uh, Crazy Rich Asians by a single vote. So... Hopefully, yeah, we can get to that eventually. But uh, if you want to be able to vote on these things and, and make potentially the, the, the changing vote, the deciding vote, uh, definitely check out our Patreon. I uh, would love to cover that at some point. I remember seeing the movie, enjoying it, but didn't know there was a book. Just like I didn't know there yeah. was a book of Psycho before this podcast. The movie is such a massive touchstone in horror and it's mm -hmm. Hitchcock and it means so much to like sent there were censorship things at the time that it was it was, you know, paving new ground for. Um, so, but I feel like that it, it kind of overshadows the fact that there is a book. So that's why it's great to cover something like this for the podcast. Sure. I mean, this is a, the perfect kind of bread and butter project for us. Um, you know, an iconic film adaptation that we can get into next week. But we like to on our podcast. And I think this is something that sets us apart from some other adaptation podcasts out there is that we like to devote time to the source material whenever possible. That's going to be the focus of this episode. We're going to focus on the book alone. We haven't watched the movie yet. I mean, we've seen it previously, but we haven't watched the movie yet. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk, you know, primarily about uh, Robert Block's novel, which in and of itself is, is also a very famous piece of work. Um, oh, but wow. yeah. you're, you're right. I mean, a lot of its fame is tied up in this film that, that came out shortly thereafter. It's one of those interesting ones. I, I almost think of it like Jaws is probably a, a decent comp to this, where it's like, it was a big deal, but then the movie becomes just its own force that that does start to overshadow it, um, despite it being a really well-renowned well, well -renowned book. Fascinating. Once we dug into this book, and I realized how much the story is just beat for beat almost, uh, it, it surprised me and, and you know, I, I honestly think some you notable be forgiven, differences, but some notable yeah. differences for sure. But I think you could be forgiven for being an audience member who just thought that Hitchcock wrote this on his own and that this was hit like because it's such it's one of the films that people look at as like one of his, you know, masterpiece, most popular films that, uh, you know, like I said, was like genre breaking at the time, like just for for what a horror film could be um, seeing how how similar it was to this source material. Though, I was like, man touching on something that would be gain in, in popularity over a long period of time, which is the, the idea of like the psychological thrillers and these, these, uh, these characters that have so much darkness in them. And they're so fascinating because there are people like this out there. And this, it, it, you know, I think eventually gets into like true crime. Like I think if you're a fan of true crime, you're a fan of, or, or maybe just like serial killers in general, you, you're fascinated by learning about them. I think you'd probably enjoy the story for, for and, and for it to be written in like the, 50s, 60s, 50s, 59. So yeah, to be right the written edge. in 59, I feel like Robert Block may have been on the cutting edge of some of the psychological, you know, and, and maybe some of the psychology doesn't even hold up today, but he seemed like he was he was touching in on something that was uh, up and coming field, maybe. Yeah. So you're, you're touching on a bunch of stuff there that that is absolutely true. And that he um, he was he, so he was like a disciple of H.P. Lovecraft. He was a horror wow. writer. And um, we'll get into his background, but like massive fan, like corresponded with H.P. Lovecraft. He ended up like over the course of his career, starting to gravitate more towards psychological horror um, and, and thrillers and that kind of thing. I think it was just basically scarier to him. Like he felt like there was more horror in the human mind 
than he was finding in, in you know, different speculative areas. Now, that's that to say he still wrote a bunch of speculative stuff, um, which we'll, we'll touch on. But I definitely have my thoughts on this. But I'm curious before I weigh in, what, what, what were your feelings reading this book just as a book? How did you enjoy it? That's what I did. I enjoyed it. I, I started it and expected it to be fairly similar to the Hitchcock story, but it sucked me in. It felt very familiar to me, but at the same time, it was this newer, fresher look at it. Um, because I haven't ever seen this perspective and and I liked the way that it felt so modern to me. It was like for a book that was written in 59, it felt like there's a lot of modern trappings of, of psychological horror things that it's this thriller that keeps you, keeps you on the edge of your seat. And I love the way that he plays with the perspectives. He has like a scene will play out for Norman Bates and then we'll see the actual scene from another character's perspective or something like that. And then there's, there's kind of these moments where you're putting the pieces together, figuring out what's, what's going on. And uh, again, I felt like it just was a very modern story for, for that time period. Yeah. Interesting. You, you would say that it's like, it does have some structural things that are definitely, I would say on the modern side of things. Um, it, yeah, it, it was an interesting read for sure. Um, sounds like you had a good time with it. Um, I did, yeah, I enjoyed I, it. Yeah, I, I also, I also found it compelling. You know, it was a quick read. It was suspenseful throughout. Um, I, I thought Block did an amazing job of staging everything and like expertly piecing together these these pieces that he that he you know designed perfectly for this story. Right, like every character had like what would you would expect for the character, but then also like something extra on top of it that made it work so well for the plot which I'll get into, but like the whole thing with, um, the, you know, our, our, our main victim or our first victim, Mary, where she has stolen this money and the way that that is so propulsive for how the plot plays out, that kind of moves everything forward. And like every little thing had like been, I don't know, just fit together really well. And, and it makes the whole story fly. Um, well, and her, her motivation and her setup, that's a story I want to read on its own. So it's really compelling yeah. to, to get into her story. And then for that to be cut short is such a shocking kind of moment and, and yeah. thing that propels the rest of the book. Yeah. And and so I, I was I had expectations going into this book, right? Like I've, I've seen this movie. Um, I've seen the like newer remake of the movie. It was a yeah. long time ago. It's been a while since I've seen either. So but I had a lot of expectations for this book going in. And I wanted to touch on like places where I was surprised and then places where it did fit kind of what I was expecting. Yeah, go for it. So for surprises, I, w I was struck by how clever the interiority was for both both Norman and our other characters, where um, I thought Block did a great job of getting us in their minds. And especially with Norman, that's like such a challenge to make it feel believable. Um, and he often did like he did a good job of, of showing like an, a mentally ill, severely, you know, mentally ill <laughs> yeah. um, mind and his relationship with his mother and like how fucked up it is. And, and he, there's a little bit of self-awareness there, but also did a really smart job of like showing how he justifies things to himself, how he lies to himself um, and, and sort of presenting that in that unreliable narrator sense that does feel more modern. Um, and, and so I, I thought that was really excellently done. Um, and I wasn't sure if we were going to how like well that was going to be handled, even if a lot of the mental illness side of it is definitely being sort of exoticized and played up and, and fictionalized in a way that in the, you know, the years since the 60s, when, you know, psychology has come a long way, we, we realize that a lot of this stuff doesn't work quite the way that the, these movies make it out to, you know, dissociative identity disorder uh, being being a main one here where it's like for a long time this became a a trope in in Hollywood where you can just kind of make it do whatever you want um and and it kind of starts here right like this is one of the first yeah. in instances of it and i do think that the story does you mentioned jaws earlier and it makes me think of like what jaws does with the shark to create a monster it feels like yeah. that's what norman bates as like a multiple personality yeah. uh, schizophrenic possibly Person. Well, he's, that's they're, the thing. Like, he's kind of a con conglomeration of a bunch of different mental illnesses, which is true. Like people do have multiple, but like it was like a cherry picked, like I'm yeah. going to get every like thing I can and put it all into one person. But they monsterfied him, right? And like they, they monsterfied turned, him. Yeah. They turned him into the monster rather than something that's more believable. One of the things I will give him credit for is that he does seem to find some empathy for Norman. Like Norman's not, I don't know, he is the monster here, but it felt to me like he was trying to at least write with a little bit of empathy for him. 
um, empathy for the devil kind of thing. I just don't know the history of psychology well enough. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the 70s is when like we really developed a lot of the analysis on them. That's sure. what I understood. It's like the show Mindhunter, right? Like it shows you that they, they were. It was still very early on in understanding these kind of people. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I give them a little bit of of forgiveness in that sense of like we just know so much more in, uh, in these days about these extreme uh, psychological states. Um, I wasn't surprised by the um, transphobia that is inherent in a story like this. Sure, um, yeah. It wasn't maybe as like overt and over and like hitting you over the head with it as I thought it might be, but it was definitely there. Um, lots of fat phobia, um, lots of equating his, his physical appearance with his, you know, evil and, and aberrant behavior. And, um, that that's sort of unfortunate, but I also like going in. I was like, that's kind of on the table at this point. I know it's going to be that way. I, I feel like we've just have moved on a little bit from this, or we should have moved on. Um, but again, this was written in '59, so it's hard to hold it to today's standards. You know, so I'm going to try not to do that too much. Yeah, I uh, I also think that we may see some of that in in the film as well. So that'll be interesting sure. to check back in on to see like how much that was you know adapted overall i had a good time with the book you know it, it was it was an interesting read and also it falls enough in line with true crime which is something that i am very interested in um to where I, it definitely was evoking a lot of things i've, I've heard about so th we'll, we'll talk about ed gein here because ed gein is the one that i had long i feel like for a long time heard that norman bates was based off of him mm. um and i found some interesting details about why that might not quite be true um, even though, uh, you know, things were all happening around the same time. Um, but we'll, we'll go with what Block has said himself about it. And I think Ed Gein is talked about in Mindhunter, the show that you mentioned, which is excellent uh, as well, yeah. right? He's one of the major, yeah, like, it. people they talk about. Um, so I'm just curious, like, there seemed to be, a, like, a, at least a nationwide fascination going on, especially with, like, how big that Ed Gein stuff would get and then into the 70s, the study of psychology. Like, I I'm just so curious, like, what he had access to for that time. Yeah. So, all right, I'll just get into it. Um, in November of 1957, so this book comes out in 59, uh, so two years before it was first published, Ed Gein was arrested in his hometown of Plainfield, Wisconsin, for the murders of two women. When police searched his home, they found furniture, silverware, and even clothing made of human skin and body parts. Psychiatrists examining him theorized that he was trying to make a woman suit to wear so that he could pretend to be his dead mother, whom his neighbor described as a Puritan who dominated her son. So you see how like this is uh, pretty damn similar to what we see yeah. in the movie here. But at the time of Gein's arrest, Block was living 35 miles away from Plainville. Though That's Block crazy. Was yeah, so he was like his neighbor, basically, and uh, wrote a story similar. Yeah. So, I mean, not that far away. Um but Block says that he was not aware of the Gein case at the time he began writing with the notion that the man next door may be a monster unsuspected even in the gossip-ridden microcosm of small-town life. The novel, one of several Block wrote about insane uh, killers, was almost completed when Gein and his activities were revealed. So Block inserted a line alluding to Gein in one of his final chapters, which I did note. Um... Block was surprised years later when news of Gein's living in isolation with a religiously fanatical mother came to his attention. Block, quote, discovered how closely the imaginary character I'd created resembled the real Ed Gein, both an overt act and apparent motivation. So he he was developing this book and he ended up writing something quite similar, um, but, but he didn't know those details. And it kind of makes sense because one of the things I was going to point out is that it was a little bit unrealistic in this book is how quickly a lot of the details about exactly what went on with Norman's like state of mind, like were revealed yeah. um, to the characters. They got it's him like, at the station and, you know, we, we questioned him and we figured it all out. We immediately found out all this, all this <laughs> motivational stuff. And it's like, yeah, that works fine in a book, but like it took years for them to start to unravel what was going on. And we still don't really know. They would have to barter with these people kind of to like get them to, to break into the mind of people like this. They had to like give them better treatment in some scenarios yeah. or whatever. Well, and, and there was also would... an attitude of like not wanting to, not wanting to know and just being like, these guys are just evil, lock them away, you know, whatever. And, and Ed Gein is an interesting case because he was clearly mentally ill. Like he went to a mental institution immediately. Yeah. Like the, this guy was so far gone um, in, in a way that like he, I, I, it almost seemed like it was based off of it too, because in the book they're like, Oh, we're not going to, we're not going to hold Norman Bates to a trial at all. 
And I was like, uh, really? That doesn't seem uh, like how our justice system is done. Even yeah. if someone does go to a mental institution, there's usually a trial still. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, too, because as much as these people want to kind of be these individuals and some of them want their name known and all this other stuff, at the same time, their trends are like for what they do and the things that they're that they respond to. So like for the Ed Gein situation, like getting information out of him to then possibly stop further occurrences of of these kinds of people um it was a priority for them i think uh after that so like yeah i think it's interesting that block was writing the story that the coincidence is so crazy to me that if he didn't somewhat base it on that it's just you know stranger than yeah. fiction i guess like i just can't imagine it somehow not being based on that there was a, a dvd release of the texas chainsaw massacre which included a, a little documentary called ed Gein, the ghoul of plainfield um, so, because Ed Gein was a famous uh, influence on Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. Um, and Block was interviewed in it about Ed Gein, and this is what he had to say. He said, uh, it was the situation itself, a mass murderer living undetected and unsuspected in a typical small town in middle America, rather than Gein himself, who sparked the storyline. He writes, thus, a real-life murderer was not the role model for my character Norman Bates. Ed Gein didn't own or operate a motel. Ed Gein didn't kill anyone in the shower. Ed Gein wasn't into taxidermy. Ed Gein didn't stuff his mother, keep her body in the house, dress in drag, or adopt an alternative personality. There were the functions and characteristics of Norman Bates, and Norman Bates didn't exist until I made him up. Out of my own imagination, I add, which is probably the reason so few offer to take showers with me. So, that's having a little fun with it there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, if, you know, if he says that that's... that's what it was then i guess that's what it was i just yeah again i think it's very coincidental yeah it's it's interesting right it's one of those things man and and honestly it's also probably one of those things that propelled this book we talked about with um jules verne wrote this book that was about a guy in a hot air balloon taking this journey and so a lot of the people at the time thought that this was like a real account of that i don't know that necessarily people thought this was a real account of ed gein but i think there was a fascination with what could possibly be going on with this kind of psychology. And then this movie and this book come out a few years after the details of Ed Gein's crimes uh, come out to the public. So I think uh, I bet there was a wave of fascination about it. I can absolutely see a fascination starting there and, and then continuing with the movie and just, you know, can, other stories like this continuing to come out. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, it, it's it, like you said before, Robert Block leading into writing stories like this because they are, possibly real more realistic than something like um you know a cthulhu story written by lovecraft while that that is terrifying and i love that kind of horror something like this i think maybe could have been really novel for the time and and to continue to tell those kinds of stories are like pretty terrifying and those continue those psychological thrillers and the the th the ones that don't necessarily go supernatural they can affect a lot of people and maybe even hit a broader audience in some sense some people some people are always turned off by speculative elements um yeah. it's definitely something he was aware of even in the book, he talks about this phenomenon of like after, you know, there's no spoilers here. This is a very old story. <laughs> um, but after Norman Bates is, is is captured, he talks about how there's this fascination in the public and people wanting to come to the hotel and stay in the rooms yep. and see what they can see. And like it becomes almost like a tourist attraction that literally happens with a lot of these infamous killers. And, you know, these houses were where they had lots of bodies and stuff like that. And like. You know, Block was touching on a very real fascination that people have with these sorts of extreme uh, people, extreme uh, situations that that touch at like some of the most in extreme bits of humanity that, you know, one can imagine. It's like being, you know, interested in psychology, like you're, you're interested yeah. to which the depths to which the human mind will go and what, what some someone can do. So let's talk about Robert Block a little bit since we already started to. Um, he was born in 1917 and would die in 1994. He was an American fiction writer, primarily of crime, psychological horror and fantasy, much of which has been dramatized for radio, cinema and television. He wrote a relatively small amount of science fiction. Um, his writing career lasted 60 years including more than 30 years of television and film. He began his professional writing career immediately after graduation from high school at age 17. Uh, he is best known for the, as the writer of Psycho, the basis for the film of the same name by Alfred Hitchcock. Block wrote hundreds of short stories and over 30 novels. He was a protege of H.P. Lovecraft, who was the first to seriously encourage his talent 
However, he started emulating Lovecraft in his brand of cosmic horror. He later specialized in crime and horror stories, working with a more psychological approach. He was a frequent contributor to pulp magazines such as Weird Tales in his early career, and he was also a prolific screenwriter and a major contributor to, the, to science fiction fanzines and fandom in general. He won the Hugo Award for That Hellbound Train and the Bram Stoker and World Fantasy Awards. So big genre guy in that sense. H.P. Lovecraft, who was also a frequent contributor to Weird Tales, became one of his favorite writers. The first of Lovecraft stories he had read was Pickman's Model and Weird Tales from October of 1927, which is funny because we have covered Pickman's Model on this podcast. Yep. So I love it when all these little connections come together. Um, Block wrote, quote, in school, I was forced to squirm my way through the works of Oliver Wendell Holmes, James Lowell, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Pickman's model, The Ghouls Ate All Three. Now that, I decided, was poetic justice. <laughs> so as a teenager, Block wrote a fan letter to Lovecraft in 1933, asking where he could find copies of earlier stories of Lovecraft's that Block had missed. Lovecraft lent them to him. He also gave Block advice on his early fiction writing efforts, asking whether Block had written any weird work, and if so, whether he might see samples of it. Block took Lovecraft's offer in 1933, sending him two short items, The Gallows and other work whose title is unknown. So, you know, it, it, that's the, this, this budding relationship where they're writing to each other. He's kind of acting as a mentor to him. I'm sure there's lots of racism being thrown around because it's H.P. Lovecraft, um, which I feel like we just have to acknowledge at any point when we talk about him. Yeah. Not great. Uh, the, you know, he's it's such a controversial figure, but also so influential. And so many people who, you know, came after him were affected by him. You know, it, it is what it is when you're looking back at these uh, historical figures. Um, so, you know, clearly influenced, uh, like more than influenced, like offering to read his work. Like that's, that's, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, uh, big act of generosity, I guess, on Lovecraft's, uh, yeah. behalf. They here. said protege too in that yeah, description. Basically so that's a protege. Yeah. Pretty much his mentor. So Lovecraft would go on to write a story where a young block appears thinly disguised as the character, Robert Blake in his story, the haunter of the dark, which is dedicated to block. Block was the only individual to whom Lovecraft ever dedicated a story. In this story, Lovecraft kills off Robert Blake, the Block-based character, repaying a courtesy, quote-unquote, that Block had earlier paid to Lovecraft in his 1935 tale, The Shambler from the Stars, in which Lovecraft-inspired figure dies. The story goes so far as to use Block's then-current address in Milwaukee. Uh, Block later recalled, quote, Believe me, beyond all doubt, I don't know anyone else I'd rather be killed by. So they literally kill each other in stories. So how uh, how much they were, <laughs> yeah, they love um, each other, friends with each other. Yeah, yeah that's, that's how they show it, affection. I think it's awesome, honestly. Like I, yeah. I I would be be honored to have someone make a thinly veiled version of me and then kill him off in a story, like a friend of mine. That would be cool. Absolutely, um, yeah, that's awesome. So in 1937, Lovecraft dies and it deeply affects Block, who was then only age 20. So this was all before he was age 20. Um, he says, quote, part of me died with him, I guess, not only because he was not a god, but a mortal, that is true, but because he had so little recognition in his own lifetime. There were no novels or collections published, no great realization, even here in Providence, of what was lost. Uh, elsewhere, he wrote, the news of his fate came to me as a shattering blow, all the more because the world at large ignored his passing. Only my parents and a few correspondents seemed to, seemed to sense my shock and my feeling that part of me had died with him. You know, it, it does touch on the fact that Lovecraft wasn't, you know, as renowned as he later would become, um, you know, in his life, but made a big impression on Block as a writer. And he would go on to have this awesome career, um, you know, writing all of like, all kinds of books. Like, I'm not going to list them all because there's 30 tons of short stories. He wrote screenplays, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. He was involved in, t in TV and, t and film. Um, super prolific. Not knowing that this was based on a book, hearing that this this author wrote psycho was so connected to lovecraft and then was so prolific that's that's amazing yeah he would go on to become fascinated by these figures and uh one of one of his fascinations was with jack the ripper he wrote an, an entire novel from jack the ripper uh, a bunch of stories about jack the ripper uh screenplays adapted from his work on jack the ripper he became kind of an expert in him um so he was fascinated with serial killers before psycho and would go on i think he wrote another novel about hh holmes um, so he he's he definitely had a certain kind of thing he was interested in here and and psycho was was his most famous uh, you know 
example of that. Now, speaking of Psycho, Block's agent would receive what was called a blind bid for the novel's screen rights, um, which eventually got up to $9,500, which Block accepted. Block had never sold a book to Hollywood before, and his uh, contract had no bonus for the film's sale. The publisher took 15% of the contract, while the agent took 10%, and uh, Block wound up with about $6,750 before taxes. Uh, despite this, the enormous profits generated by Hitchcock's film, Block received no further direct compensation. Only Hitchcock's film was based on Block's novel. The later films in the Psycho series bear no relation to either of Block's sequel novels. Indeed, Block's proposed script for the film Psycho 2 was rejected by the studio, as there were many other submissions, and it was uh, it was that that he later subsequently adapted into his own sequel novel. So he would go on to write two more Psycho novels, but they bear no relation apparently to the sequel films that came out. It's it's hard to believe that you would stray you would just say no, you know what? Yeah. We're not going with the the source material anymore. That's unfortunate. You know, you would have liked to think that he would made made some more money off of it, but yeah. uh I, hopefully it pushed people to don't, the... don't feel too bad for him because you know like what you're about to touch on. It's a huge uh advertisement for the book. Sure. Those people go out and buy it. And also, 6,750 bucks. That doesn't sound like a lot of money in these days, but I put it into like a little calculator yeah. and that was about $70,000. Sure. And by today's money. So not bad. Um it's not it's not nothing. Then Hitchcock also like the the legacy of the story gets to continue on in a, in a really cool sure. way too. To have somebody like Hitchcock adapt your work is like, you know, can't ask yeah. for more than that. So I also saw that he wrote three scripts for Star Trek uh, the original Star Trek series, including the episodes What Are Little Girls Made Of, Wolf in the Ford, and another Jack the Ripper variant called Cat's Paw. Um, I'm not super familiar with Star Trek, like, episode by episode, but I just thought it was funny that, you know, the guy who wrote Psycho wrote three screenplays for Star Trek. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for him. Um, yeah, I also wish that... I need to go back and rewatch the original Star Trek because, uh, you know, yeah. it gets, it, it's referenced often and it's it's such a, you know, sci-fi pinnacle, I think. For Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I'm not going to go over all of his screen credits, but uh, I, I noted a few on here, like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was a long-running TV series. He wrote episodes for that. Tales from the Dark Side, um, Tales of the Unexpected. He even wrote an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation for um, The Lighthouse, which was filmed as an episode of The Hunger in 1998. So I thought that was a little funny, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe connection there who we covered just a few uh, few projects ago. Probably another influence on on somebody like Block, you know, coming up. You're going to yeah. be influenced by Poe. So yeah, he would he would uh live uh, uh you know, a nice fairly long life, die at the age of 77 after a long battle with cancer. Um but he uh, he released his third psycho novel with Tor called Psycho House. Um you know, that I think was his final novel. It does bear no relation to the film titled Psycho 3. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, also, I saw he wrote a novelization for Twilight Zone, the movie, which we covered as a little bonus episode. Yeah. So, so many weird connections to other projects we'd done that I had no idea about until I started researching this guy. Oh, he won the first ever World Fantasy Award, which was a, a convention I went to earlier this year. And Block was the first ever award recipient for that. That's really cool. Anyway, that's that's Robert Block. Uh, you know, uh, uh, influential writer, uh, big name, but always someone who I think was equated with his most famous work. And that's Psycho. And, it, yeah. you know, a lot of that fame comes from the, the, the film that we'll get to next week. And it's not the worst thing in the world to uh, have a mega bestseller be adapted and that be yeah. your, your thing you're known for. It's like, you know, I think a lot of authors will take that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, he had fans. He had plenty of readers, um, you know, definitely seemed like a, 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 you know, an influential writer. All right. So the, for the plot. Norman Bates, a middle-aged bachelor, is dominated by his mother, a mean-tempered, puritanical old woman who forbids him to have a life outside of her. They run a small motel together in the town of Fairvale, but business has suffered since the state relocated the highway. In the middle of a heated argument between them, a customer arrives, a young woman named Mary Crane. Mary is on the run after impulsively stealing $40,000 from a client of the real estate company where she works. She stole the money so that her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, can pay off his debts and they can finally get married. After checking in, she accepts Bates' invitation to have dinner with him at his house, an invitation that sends Mrs. Bates into a jealous rage. She screams, quote, I'll kill the bitch, and Mary overhears. During dinner, Mary gently suggests that Bates put his mother in a mental institution, but he denies there is anything wrong with her. Quote, we all go a little mad sometimes, he says which becomes a famous quote for this book. 
Um, Mary says goodnight and returns to her room, resolving to return the money so that she will not end up like Bates. Moments later, however, a figure resembling an old woman frightens Mary in the shower with a butcher knife and then beheads her. It took me, embarrassingly, like a few pages until I remembered the the connection with Norman Bates and, and his mother, like the oh. actual reveal. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny to like get started into it. I'm like, there's something with the mom, right? I, like, yeah. uh, and like as it as it went on very early on, I remembered, um, you know, it's a good setup. The idea. Um, first of all, I like that we start out with a couple chapters that are like, who's you're trying to figure out who the main character is. You're trying to figure out who we should yeah. uh, buy. You start, with, you start with Norman Bates and it seems right. like he's the main character, you know, but then I think the second I mean, yes, chapter he is, but... and I think the second chapter immediately is from Mary's point Mary. of view. Yeah. And that's cool. You're like, Oh, okay. Maybe it's her. Yeah. And so you buy into her story about like the, the robbery and you're like, Oh, this is cool. She, you know, she did the right thing to stay with her mother um, and take care of her family and then eventually like met this guy and he's in debt and they want to get him out of debt th- then i'm like oh this is like maybe gonna be like a bonnie and clyde spin on this for a minute and i'm getting i'm getting <laughs> bought into that and then we uh we get the the iconic moment which you know i'm happy to say is a robert block invention uh the, <laughs> the shower scene um hitchcock just visually told it in such a striking way that it's stuck with everybody yeah you get we get uh norman looking through the peephole and, yeah. you know, the, the way that the mother, the stuff of the mother is dealt with, it's really clever, honestly. And this became the blueprint going forward for people writing these kinds of stories um, where he does a really good job of like, because I, I remembered the connection with the mother immediately and how they're the same person. Right. Yeah. Um, but you, you can read the book knowing that and it still holds up. It and does. that's what I, I think is it. what's so clever about yeah. it. Like he, he does a really good job of like making it to where he could say like, Oh, I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't stop her. I, I was paralyzed with fear or something. Yeah. And you realize it's because he's like watching her and she actually is like controlling his body. And like, there were times like that where it was really clever. And there are moments where she, he just straight up says like, she, she took over and I couldn't do anything. And like, yeah. he, he like, like she, you're, you're understanding that like, oh, okay. Like she's physically manifesting as a personality at that point. Yeah, I mean, and then she's also just like there in the background when he is clearly in control, but mm-hmm. he keeps hearing her and he's like, it's almost as if she was there. I could hear her saying it and like, it's because she is there. You know what I mean? Like it, it was cl- cleverly staged to where the first time you read it, if you've never seen the movie and you're reading this book, you don't know at first, right? Especially in 1959. So this had to be such a huge reveal, right? The the, the yeah. shocking reveal that they're the same person and that had to be just blowing people's minds. And, and you can see why this made such a, such a, you know, impact when it came out. Alcoholism plays a big part too with, with some of the stuff we see, like hit him hitting the bottle turns into him, like possibly like blacking out at times or seemingly falling asleep. Like the, even the moment when he's looking through the people, I think he's been drinking and then he like says he passes out from alcohol and you're like, what? It didn't seem like he drank that much. And then he comes to, and then we later, the, I think in the next chapter, we get the perspective of, everything that goes down with him like getting rid of the body getting rid of the the you know the car and then the cleanup everything like that which it's gruesome and and like again i don't know how normal this was for uh horror or thrillers for the time like how how much detail they would go into and um you know how gruesome it would be i mean i guess it wasn't like slasher but it was like enough to to i think upset people probably in 1959 if i know anything about those their uh you know, moralities or, or whatever at the time. There's definitely a bit of that syndrome of, uh, you know, people make fun of the, the whole men writing women thing with Mary's perspective and how she's behaving. Uh, she's like checking herself out in the mirror. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like this is one of those times where it was done for a reason. Now, maybe he does this in all his books, but like he specifically had this play out that way because Norman is watching and we don't really know that at first when we're reading it. But he had her behaving in this way because it's supposed to, like, make him lose it, right? Um, so so it was done with a particular purpose in mind, but it just feels, like, weirdly exploitative. And, um, again, this is the kind of thing that I'm not shocked to read about. Um, and, and we still see people do this kind of stuff today. Um, but it is definitely an example of that, although I give it more of a pass than I would, like, a modern writer. Whereas I feel like these days we should know better. And at least this character does something interesting and, and like steals money from a bit like that's yeah. a cool moment to have for a character. And like, obviously, yeah. eventually she's unceremoniously killed off. And it's like that big shocking thing. It's a big shock. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, and we think it's the mother. It, yeah, and it was cleverly written where so the POV shifts 
to where almost omniscient when the actual attack occurs and she sees it was it's like a figure wearing rouge and like you know the the hair of the mother and like it, it's written in such a way where it's like kind of ambiguous but you know the first time reading it you assume it's the mother mm-hmm. the second time reading it you're seeing how he left some room for it to not actually be her and instead be norman dressed as her at the end from her perspective of the, i think the second chapter she says she's gonna give the money back she's like you know what this is wrong i'm gonna give the money back i'm gonna do the right thing and then boom it's even yeah. worse because then she's killed and she doesn't get she she has to live with or everyone else lives knowing that she was a thief and not that she was gonna then return the money yeah that's true yeah, I mean, and, and uh, I, I love that there's like unfinished business left for her, right? Because like, I mean, when people die, that's that's so often the case. So prior to Mary's murder, Norman had watched her through a peephole in his office as she was undressing. He was drunk and shortly passed out. Upon waking, he discovers Mary's body and suspects his mother to be the culprit. His first thought is to have her put in jail, but decides to cover for her instead. He cleans up the scene of the murder and disposes of Mary's body in her car in a sinkhole near the motel. Mary's boss, however, has enlisted the services of a private detective named Arbergast to find Mary and recover the $40,000. Arbergast has arrived at the motel and demands a meeting with Norman and his mother. The same figure of an old woman that appeared when Mary was killed in the shower appears and slices the detective's throat. Norman puts Arbergast's body in his car in the same sinkhole as he did Mary's body and the car. So let's talk about Arbergast. That's the main focus of this next section here. Um, but I feel like you do have to mention a little bit what's going on with, uh, was it Lila, um, and, and Sam. So Lila and Sam meet, Lila tells him about how her sister's missing, but at the same time, all of a sudden Arbogast shows up and he's this like slick investigator. He's this hyper-masculine, like knows what's going on, can see through people's bullshit. He's the figure that, especially readers at the time, had to expect is going to come in and get the better of Norman Bates. So again, Block is setting up a big surprise here because this this has become more par for the course later. But Mm -hmm. for the time, 1959, I think it's a bit shocking to have him go down the way he does. Well, especially you're coming off the heels of film noir in a major way with investigators and people solving crimes in these. Cut from that cloth. Exactly. He's that guy. And then it doesn't go. The, he's not the hero at the end. He's not the sort of guy who sorts through the good and the bad and kind of like does his own thing. He's a loose cannon, yeah. solves it at the end. He instead is like kind of a loose cannon, all of those other, all of those things, but then is, again, unceremoniously killed, body dispatched of. You would say I would say his fatal flaw was that he underestimates Norman so much. Um, yeah. This is somebody he looks at and he, he just kind of thinks uh, he's pitiful, doesn't see him as a threat. Yeah, at least he snuck um, a phone call. A lot call. of people are that way. Yeah, <laughs> at least he snuck a phone call right before his death. That was like, that was clever. Important bit of plot staging because we needed to get those two characters to come to the to the hotel, um, and we needed to have the next scene we're going to get into where they go and talk to the sheriff to set that up. So again, I, I thought this was like really cleverly like this has to happen so that I can get this thing to happen, which is exactly what I want for this plot that I've intricately crafted. Um, and, and I thought, you know, lots of credit to, to Block for doing that. And what is a pretty short novel, there's not a lot of like fat on the bone here. So meanwhile, Lila, Mary's younger sister, has become worried by the disappearance of Mary and has gone looking for her along with Sam Lo- Loomis. They, like Arbogast, managed to trace her to the Bates Motel. Lila contacts the local sheriff who assures her that her suspicion is unfounded. He tells her that Norman is not a threat and that his mother died years earlier by poisoning herself and her lover. Lila and Sam decide to investigate for themselves. Sam tries to distract Norman while Lila looks around the house, but Norman manages to knock Sam out with a bottle. Lila finds a small, shriveled-up woman and assumes it's Mrs. Bates. Upon closer examination, she discovers that it is a mummified corpse, that of Norma Bates. At that point, Norman comes up behind her dressed as his, in his mother's clothing and, feigning a woman's voice, announces that he is Norma Bates. He approaches Lila with a knife, but Sam, who has regained consciousness, is able to get the knife from him and contain him until he is arrested. Norman, it turns out, developed a split personality after having murdered his mother and her lover and became his mother in an alternate version of himself. Norman is declared psychotic and put in a mental institution for life. Days later, the, quote, mother personality completely takes over Bates's mind. He virtually becomes his mother. She blames Norman for the murders and resolved to stay quiet and still in order to show Norman's doctors at the institution that she, quote, wouldn't even harm a fly. That's where we end the book. One thing I'll point out is, and this, this summary kind of glosses over it, is there's a 
big climactic moment where Sam, I guess, confronts Norman that is jumped over. It, it, we, we get to that moment and the chapter ends and then we get later on um, Lila learning about what happened and what was going on with Norman from like a, from I think the sheriff who's telling her a report that he's heard from the psychologist yeah. and all this stuff and then talking to Sam. And we don't see any of this actually play out. Um, what were your thoughts on that moment? We've seen other authors do this, but you know, what did you think of it? Again, I I just don't know how novel this is for the time. It feels like he's probably it's pretty fresh. It feels like it's it's he's doing something possibly newer in in the way that he's playing with the perspectives and the chapters ending abruptly. I'd like that. It get yeah. it definitely for for a story that I think if it played out just like traditionally straightforward narrative. Um, I would have found it a little more boring, but this th- this did keep it fresh for me. Yeah, we see lots of overlapping scenes, too, where we see a scene from one person's perspective and then we see it from Norman's perspective, too. Yeah, because which they're, is fun. they're so dramatically different. Yeah, Definitely like fun. But uh, it, this was a situation where I was a little bit frustrated with shifting away from this moment. I, I get why authors sometimes do this. It is a little bit of a of a like it's like a carrot. We kind of want to know what happens. So it keeps us reading. He's got all this stuff that he's going to reveal about what happened with Norman. Maybe you could argue this like tussle that he must have had with Sam isn't necessarily the most important thing, but like it felt like a buildup that was kind of just dropped. Yeah. Um, and I was a little, I was a little frustrated with it. Like I kind of wanted to see that scene. It's interesting because it feels like Lila becomes the main character and he's like not as interested in, in seeing that scene. Like you said, I do think that it wouldn't have been. Yeah, like maybe maybe the fight wouldn't have been as yeah, could have just been a few paragraphs. Read. That's it didn't need to be a whole chapter or anything. Just a few more paragraphs of the of what happened with Sam, because Norman is like coming down the stairs. He's like coming at her with, you know, he's got the knife. He's just revealed himself. And then the chapter ends and then everything's over. It does feel very, very like cliffhanger ish. But then there's no like the next episode. If you were I thought maybe we were going to get it as like a flashback later because he'd done all this stuff out of time, like out out of order. But we don't. No, we don't. We just kind of get it. We're just told about it. Um, Also talking about this cop, the small town cop. Yeah. uh, Man, do they make this guy look like a moron? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He just wants everything to be over. Like he believes everything at face value. Maybe there is some some truthfulness to that kind of person at this time (laughs) period, and maybe still is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But man, if that's not like a a, you know a commentary being made there, it's like this investigator is like you know motivated and he's clever and he's smart, and then this this guy's just you know this is slow town. Nothing happens here, man. He's like, don't worry about it, and you're like. So that can you imagine being <laughs> well, in Lila's and, and uh, Sam's situation and just being like, yeah. well, I have to take matters into my own hands now. All right. Which works perfectly for the plot. But like you're saying, like, I, I think there is some truth to this, especially at the time, because as we've seen in the show Mindhunter, like yeah. they hadn't developed the psychology and the F- FBI hadn't developed like this understanding of mass mass murderers and serial killers. And so a lot of these people, like these cops, have no idea what they're dealing with. They don't know how to predict it. They don't know how to see that this is even a thing that could be possible. It's one of the reasons why they, for a long time, it was so hard to solve these murders or to catch them while it was still happening. um, Because it's like the hardest murders to, to solve are always when somebody kills a stranger. And that's what a lot of these, these, these killers are doing. Um, because there's no, like, it's not like a clear, like connection between two people. Like, how do you connect these two people? Um, and you have to be willing to entertain, you know, these, these outlandish scenarios. And often back then, at least like these guys had no idea that this was even a thing that people could, would do or could do. Yeah. And then, yeah, this is such this is a time that's so far before anything like DNA and stuff. They're like looking for fingerprints yeah. and they're, you know what I mean? They need, they need actual physical evidence if, you know, and, and then even then they, when they find the earring, they're like, no, it doesn't matter. Even if we bring this to the cops, they're going to find some way to say like, oh, she could have fallen. She could have done this or that. So there's so many ways, so many loopholes then. And that's why, you know, people think that there was like this rise and serial killers, I think it was just a rise, and I, I don't think I, I've heard this from from people who know better. Um, it was more so just people becoming aware. There's always been serial killers. It's just people got away with it in the past, yeah. um, or they were, you know, maybe not like residential serial killers. There was some some other facet to it. It's changed over time, but I mean, like, it's still something that I mean, they're still happening today. Um, and then um, it's absolutely something that would happen 
Um, you know, if you're a fan of true crime enough and you listen to enough of these like podcasts or read these books, like you'll know this is something that went around a long time ago. There were serial killers, you know, on the frontier in, yeah. you know, frontier West. Like there, there's, there's people who have been doing this stuff for, for as long as there have been people. And like you said, it's just awareness about it. Yeah. And, you know, well, I hear all this. One of the major ones that I just would bring attention to if people aren't aware is is uh, like indigenous women near the Canadian border. Right. Uh, yeah. t there's like they're just like unreported, no investigations. All, it's just like these horrific yeah. areas where these people and that are still could be racially motivated. But it also could be like you're talking about, like a serial killer, maybe somewhere where people won't look or something like that. Like, well, the, and specifically cops, pe people cops. that won't be investigated. Right. Like they, they serial killers are very good. That's why often, so often sex workers are the targets, um, because they know that police look at that often and write it off and say, oh, this person was going to die any day, you know, anyways, because of their lifestyle, what have you, and writes it off and doesn't think to make a connection and to start looking at patterns and instead assumes it was something related to the job that got them killed. Um, and serial killers have been have been, you know, doing that for a long time. So. Um, and this is all stuff that Block was aware of. And, and, and like I said, like, I think he, he had this fascination with H.H. Um, H. Holmes and um, Jack the Ripper. So he, he was thinking about these figures a lot, um, these more historical figures. And then Ed Gein, I think, ended up becoming someone that he ended up being very familiar with and tied to because of the similarities between Norman Bates and him. And uh, shout out to science, right? These days we have we have DNA uh, in genetic testing and things like that, that, that these these operating serial killers, when they do crop up, tend to get some do tend to be found because of that. Yeah. You know, and there's there's some ethical uh, valid debates about, you know, using DNA and stuff to like go back and find people. But well, yeah. um, it's also, you know, it's hard to to argue against it when someone like the Golden State Killer gets, gets exactly. Caught in, so, yeah. Um, but you know, there's also a lot of other people you don't maybe don't make as big of headlines, and you're wondering about some of this stuff. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. That's beyond the scope <laughs> of this podcast. Um, but it was an interesting thing to think about. So yeah, I was surprised that this book had so many different POVs. That we also went omniscient at times. That it was written in this out of order sequencing that we had overlapping scenes, um, that we had such uh, crisp and interesting interiority for, for Norman um, and for other characters. Um, I was I was pretty taken with this and, and surprised at how how uh, readable it was. And like you said, it did have kind of a modern feel. You hit the nail on the head with all that right there. That's all, all the things I wanted to say in wrapping up with the stories. Like uh, all of those things led me to feel like this is such a modern story. And maybe this is the beginning of the trend uh, with this author sort of being maybe the, the grandfather of of all of this, th all these thrillers that we see these days that that follow these kinds of killers that are possible you know these people yeah. that, that could exist out there in some ways I, I one last thing i do want to just kind of circle back to is that at the end when the details are being revealed about what went on with norman a lot of this is sort of placed at the at the the feet of uh being uh trans and a there's this like really weird thing where they start talking about like how like he was wanted to be another gender as if this was something that like is is on the level with everything else he did like there's a lot of equating right and maybe you would say like oh he's just laying it out that this was true um but because of the way it's being laid out in a list of other things that were like so criminal it it, it feels like he's saying this is somehow to blame for it or like definitely like if you know somebody who does this you should be worried about them um and that kind of stuff is insidious and um yeah. I, I would think the the trans community is probably not a big fan of this novel. There's like demonizing going on with Absolutely. that. But and, and that's only a, a part of it as well, right? Like it's it's clearly a mentally ill person in addition to also maybe being trans. So there's like a lot yeah. that people may correlate with like if you're trans, you're also going to be, you know, have schizophrenia or something like that at, at this time. So yeah, yeah it just being equated you, with a mental illness. Yeah. And right. if you so if you hold this up to like modern day, it just yeah. doesn't it doesn't uh, work, obviously. And it, it's definitely one of those things, man, that um, I think is supposed to like scare people and shock them. And um, when people's ways of life and identities are being used to that as like a little trick to like scare people. And it, it just has some unfortunate consequences in the real world. 
Um, and I think we can we can probably circle back to that when we talk about the movie because I'm sure it does a lot of the same um, and probably has a sort of a checkered legacy with that. Um, but uh, from the perspective of someone who's reading this book uh, for the podcast, you know, it's an interesting historical novel in the sense of like its place in horror, clearly extremely influential. Um, I didn't I didn't include the quote here, but Stephen King would talk about Block uh, favorably. So influential potentially to Stephen King. Um, you know, it's it's a, a really interesting bit of of horror history. I did feel like this could be uh, a King connection in some way. Like when I was yeah. reading it, I obviously they were contemporaries in some sense. Um, Block predates him clearly, but like the later part of Block's career, like Stephen King is already making a name for himself. So, yeah, you know, it wasn't like, you know, who super influential in that way. But uh, I did see a, it was like a, a, a line where King was giving him credit for um, reinventing like the antihero and stuff that uh, that became so popular. So I think that's where we're going to leave the book. Um, we got a lot to talk about next week with Alfred Hitchcock, uh, you know, a little a little filmmaker that you might have heard of. Um, I honestly don't know a ton about Hitchcock. Like I, I know the name. I know he's he's foundational. But beyond that, I'm really excited to to learn more about him and to learn more about this movie. Yeah, I mean, his legacy is just so massive. Master of suspense. Yeah. Uh, so that's like, you know, that's a title that I don't think comes lightly. And he was he definitely, I think, legitimized the horror space in a way that a lot of general audiences weren't accustomed to. Like he he made it more accessible and, and he had he had some really great thriller stories. And then just the filmmaking prowess is just top notch. I mean, legendary, just like super influential for yeah. for uh, just directors going forward as well so excited to get into that if you enjoyed this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on and if you're on youtube give us a like and make sure to subscribe and leave a comment uh, below and let us know what you what you thought of this book if you've read it or if you haven't read it if it sounds interesting to you if you think you might check it out um love to hear that yeah leave a review of the bates motel let us know you know give it five <laughs> stars and yeah uh Make sure you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, we're everywhere, so try to find us on there. Yeah, and if you'd like to support the, this podcast in another way, as we mentioned before, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. We have bonus episodes that we release there every month, and then you also get access to the polls that help us choose uh, certain projects four, four times a year. We take a community poll from Patreon. So if you want to be involved with that, like choosing future, future projects like this one, check out patreon all right so all we got left to do is to tackle hitchcock next week um and then we're, we're rapidly approaching the holidays here and our last looks episode will be coming up so uh 2023 is coming to a close thank you all for joining us and for sticking with us and until next time keep adapting